We are glad that you've chosen to take the time to, again, go through God's Word with us. If this is your first time connecting to the FX Talk podcast, we welcome you to FX Church, Foot of the Cross Church, um, and we uh, go through the Scriptures together. We believe that the Word of God is the place where we find everything we need uh, in this life uh, and for the life to come. And so, you know, we're in this series in the book of First John called So That. Um, you know, we seem to be, again, living in a time of uncertainty. It seems as if there's limited trustworthy information. Few people seem to be truly seeking God and His Word for answers. The church is a mess, and if you don't know who or what to believe, then, then what do we do? This is the same exact context that God has John write this letter a long, long time ago. And God has John write this letter so that we can know God's truths, show love for God's commands, and grow in God's love, so that our joy may be complete. And all those are quotes from the book of 1 John. And so I want to dive in this morning. We, we pick back up, and well, let's back up for a second. 1 John 1, 1 says, what was from the beginning? Verse 3, he says, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In 2.1, we looked at the next week, so that you may not sin. And last week, we looked at 2.19, so that it might be made clear. So even as we dive into this first part, in 1 John, we're seeing that from the beginning, God wants to make things clear. He wants us to, to not sin anymore and to, to deal with the problem of the brokenness of our world because of sin. He wants our joy to be complete. And so John is writing this letter and has been asked by God to write this letter for those reasons. Now this week, <clears throat> we want to look at what he says that it's so that he might take away sins, that he might take away sins. Now, I know sin can be a, a dirty word in our culture, but let's think about this for a minute. You know, the crisis that we're in, if we're honest, is exposing things in so many ways, things that we thought were good that now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm looking at and thinking, man, I just was kind of going on autopilot doing things in life and there's a lot of things I'm not going to do anymore after this crisis is over. There are things that I see are no longer good for me. They're no longer the right way to do things. A great example of that is the amount of time I spend in prayer. I've just decided that after this is over, I'm going to spend a lot more time praying. Um, you know, there's good and bad things that we're learning through this. But, but what God has done is He has torn down the structures that we have made in our lives so that we're exposed. And really, it's exposing the curse of our world that we need to be saved and we can't do it ourselves. We need someone to figure out how to take this pandemic away from us. Man, it'd be so nice if it just disappeared, but we're having to live in it. Well, the Bible says that sin is that same way, that we need Him to take away as we looked at in 1 John, the, the lust of our flesh, our desire to want, the, the lust of our eyes to, to get the things and see the things we want, and the pride of our lifestyles. 
And man, has he torn those things down. And, and he wants to do it because he loves us, not because he's mad or angry, but because he wants us to see that, that the world that we're living in is corrupted. And he wants us to have a pure and perfect view of the world that, that he wants to bring someday and how he wants to change our hearts. You know, and if we're honest, we recognize that we did this to ourselves, that, that the mess that we're in, we did to ourselves and we keep passing it down to other people. You know, some say this virus came because it was engineered by mankind. That, that could be, maybe we'll never know. Others say that it came from eating certain kind of animals. Well, if you read your Bible, especially the book of Leviticus, the animals that they're saying that these diseases are coming from are animals that God said not to eat thousands and thousands of years ago. I mean, it's amazing to me that, that we don't listen and we see the consequences and they just keep building and we wonder why. See, that's how the Bible frames the problem of sin. It's just like a virus. It's very contagious. It's passed down generationally. It even is passed in the womb, just like a lot of sicknesses are. And it says that God is the only one that can take away and deal with that problem. And the world reflects that what God says is true. Because we're living in a moment where we're like, yeah, man, this makes a lot of sense. But here's the problem we have. Even though the world is in that mess, we're still having to try to figure out how to step out in faith to live our lives knowing that death is awaiting us or could be awaiting us. But that's the story of humanity. If it's not COVID, something's going to get us. And that's where we pick back up our story. In 1 John 3, verse 1, it says, Look how great a love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. You know, he, he writes here, as he writes the first two chapters, he gets to this third chapter, and he just wants to make it clear, look, I'm saying some really hard things, but just know that if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, the Bible says that you've been adopted into a new family, and that you can have confidence, and that you can have a different kind of life, and live a different kind of life that God wants you to live and know that someday he's going to come back and appear to us, and we are going to celebrate that finally we're out of this mess. We're out of the pandemic of sin that we find ourselves in. But you know, being family has responsibility. Love has responsibility to it. It's not to earn it or to keep someone's love, but just it's trustworthy, grateful response is what we're supposed to have. A trustworthy, grateful res response to love. Because if it's about earning it or keeping it, then it's really not love. It's a contract. It's a deal. And God says, I want to love you. And then there's a way that I respond if I actually have the love. That when God forgives me and he comes into my life, he gives me new love, an ability to love. And when he does that, he gives me the responsibility the responsibility to respond to him in gratitude and tell others about how grateful I am for the forgiveness and love and how grateful I am for the laws of God and the ways that God says to do things because it protects me, it protects others, and it glorifies God. You see, right before this in 1 John 2, 28, John says, God has John say, 
so that when he appears, it's when Christ comes again, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You see, sin causes us to not have boldness, but to be ashamed. If you're sick, I mean, I see this all the time. When we're going out on walks on a fairly regular basis, it's like I panic when I start coughing. Why? It's almost like I'm not bold anymore to be walking, looking to see who's around because I'm kind of ashamed that I'm coughing because I'm afraid of what the world or what the people are going to think. Is that guy sick and not wearing a mask and because he's out walking in, you know, open air? It's the same thing we deal with when we look at, at sin, that God wants us to have a boldness, a confidence, a joy, a lack of shame, and a hope to know that He will deal with our sin problem, how we got the problem, and how we prevent the problem from happening again. And boy, is that a word we need. In 1 John 3, 3, it says, and everyone who has this hope in him, in other words, when you place your hope in Jesus, the proper response to that, because you know he loves you, is to purify ourselves, to purify himself just as Jesus, as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law, and sin is the breaking of the law. You know, where is your hope? This verse says, and everyone who has hope in him, where's your hope? Because listen, your hope shows your desires. It shows what you really want, what you really desire, what you really think life is about. And here, John says, anyone who hopes in him understands that the purpose of life is is to be purified. It's to get rid of all the mess and the sin and and the, the disease and out so that we can accomplish the task God has for us and not contaminate other people. Listen, we're talking about purity in our culture right now because of this very reason, that that we know we can, can be contagious. We know that there are things that are not good for us, things not to touch and how to touch them and what to do when we, when we touch them. I mean, it's like living in the book of Leviticus right now. When you go back and read it, we're wearing gloves and masks and wash your hands, stay home and be careful We're trying to figure out how to purify a world that's perishing. You know, it's about having the anticipation when he writes in this verse of when you know that he's coming again, I just want to be ready. You know, it's kind of like a a bride or a groom getting ready for a wedding. If we understand his love, we understand how much that he cares for us and the home that he promises for us because of the relationship we have with him, then it's going to make us want to be ready. It's going to want to make him not only take away our sins for eternity, but man, take more of my sin away. Take more of my problems of my heart away from me so that I'm more like you, so I can glorify you more and love other people more. That, that's what it's like. We're just getting ready for the wedding someday when Christ comes back to call us home to be with him. And so it's like a bride or a groom preparing and all the preparation that goes in to that event. And then he says, everyone who commits sin breaks the law. Well, duh. I mean, the basic root of sin is rebellion. It's disregard for what God says, what his laws, commands, and statutes say. It's inherently disregard for him because if you disregard his laws, you're disregarding his authority. You're disregarding who he is. And so sin is just breaking the law. It's saying, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want. We see people doing that now. I don't care what, you know, the government says. I don't know what to believe. So I'm just going to do what I want and hope for the best. 
quite honestly, that's what humanity often does. Instead of going to God and asking Him for His help, that He might take away our sin, that He might take away the mess, and that He might make us who He wants us to be. You know, according to the verb tense, when you go into to verse 5, it says, you know that He, Jesus, was revealed. He came. He, he revealed Himself fully to us. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come and reveal Himself. We look back to it. And it says, He revealed Himself so that He might take away sins. And there is no sin in Him. Everyone who remains in Him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen or known Him. Now, this can be a hard verse. But check out the first part. The first part of the verse says, the reason he came the first time was so that he might make clear that he was the Passover lamb, which we just celebrated a few weeks ago, that he died in our place, that he came back to life to show there's no longer any sin in this body. I have a new body. There is a new way. That was exactly what the entire picture of the Bible presents from its beginning, as John uses that phrase over and over again, from the beginning, in the beginning, all those things that he says to present day. And he says, everyone who remains in him does not sin. And everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Now, this can be hard because it can easily look like in this passage that if I sin, then, then I'm, I don't know God, then, then I don't have Jesus, then, then I don't know him. And that's just not true. That is not true. And so sin is that lawless disregard of God. And according to the verb tense that John uses here, what John is really talking about is a lifestyle of habitual sin. So, so it's like saying everyone who remains in him doesn't have a lifestyle of sin, doesn't just sin and not think about it, not ask him to take it away, not deal with it. And everyone who sins, who lives that habitual lifestyle of sin and it doesn't bother them and they don't like try to deal with it, they don't have the church hold them accountable, they don't try to, to, to get over it, to have him take it away, it says that you really don't know him. You don't understand why he came the first time. Because if you did, if you understood what you accepted when you asked him to come in your heart, then you understood what he was going to do when he came in, and that was to do away with sin, to take away our sin of our heart for our whole life. And so he goes on and he says in verse 8, um, or in John 1, 8, he said, if we have sin, if, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So John right here, we know this is him talking about habitual sin because earlier in verse 1 or chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if you have no sin, you're a liar, you're deceiving yourself. And then he says how to deal with that sin, that, that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to take away that unrighteousness and that sin. So John isn't saying that, that if you sin, then you've lost your salvation. What he's saying is if you have a relationship with God and where you think and define God as him being okay with whatever you define is right and wrong, you've got a major problem. In verse 7, he goes on to say, Little children, let no one deceive you. So he talks about sin and the importance of recognizing sin. And the next thing John says, he goes, listen, there are going to be people that try to deceive you on this. There are going to be people that try to tell you that, that, that you can live in hypocrisy. There are going to be people who try to, to deceive you and make you think that, that, that you can have whatever lifestyle you want or do whatever you want. And God, God will just forgive you and it's no big deal. And he goes on and he says, the one who does what is right is righteous, 
just as he, Jesus, is righteous. You know, we have people constantly, we have a world that's constantly trying to deceive us. And you see, morals without God's motive isn't right. If you have morals, but you don't have God's motive behind it, then that doesn't stand. You have a false motive. You're trying to be God by using his law for your benefit. And that's not godly. Does it work? Sure, God established the the rules of our world because of our sin. So if we don't do sin, if we don't do those things, then the world kind of works better. But it doesn't mean God's good with it fully because it means that, that you're doing it from your motive, not his. See, even if someone who does not know Jesus does what is right, they actually have no idea that they're admitting that God's right by doing it and that they're proving his rightness by doing it. They're agreeing without really knowing or having a relationship with God. So if someone says, I'm not going to murder someone today, God's great. That's a moral law. You're agreeing that murder is bad, but that doesn't mean you know God. It just means that morals bad, murder's bad and it doesn't work out well for you. And, and, and apparently John writes this because there were those who taught that you could be righteous before God with no evidence of righteousness in your life. And God is, John is going after that. That's why he goes on to this next part in verse 8. And it says, the one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil, to take away the works of the devil and sin. You see, the, the purpose of Jesus wasn't to destroy people. The purpose of Jesus is to destroy the works of the devil. And if people are going to participate with the devil, if you're linked to him, you're going to suffer with him. It's like if you're in a crowd of people and something illegal is being done, you're probably going to suffer the consequences of being with those people. It's no different. And God says there's only two camps of people to be in. Either you're in the devil's camp and your sin has not been taken away and, it's, and you're stuck there, or you're in his camp and God's going to help you deal with that sin and teach you how to live in a relationship with him. In verse eight, when we look at this and talks about the devil, it's, you know, some might think that this is harsh and what, what he's saying, he's calling people that they're of the devil. Well, actually, John is just using Jesus's word. You know, we love to see Jesus as this loving, caring, you know, you know, nice guy, but Jesus in John 8, 41 through 45, calls some people the sons of their father, the devil. Jesus' point was important. He was establishing the principle that that spiritual parentage determines our nature and our destiny. It goes all the way back to the beginning. He's saying, look, you're either either a child of the enemy or you're a child of God. There's no in-between. There's no like middle good people camp. Now, some people may be moving towards adoption and some people may be fleeing away from being adopted and can't stand it. But, but, there's no middle camp. They're still in one camp or the other. And quite honestly, the entire world is in a family of sinners, and we need to be taken from that family and put in a new family. That's exactly what John's getting to when he says little children. He goes on to say in 3.9, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Again, habitually sin. Remember, he said, if you say you don't sin, the truth isn't in you. So John can't be saying here that if you sin, then you're not of God. He's saying habitual sin. Because his seed remains in him, he is not able to habitually sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. 
Who does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother. I love this. John lays this out and he says, look, it's kind of clear. If you'll just take a minute and look, the people that are okay with sin, those are the ones that you can say, they're trying to deceive everyone to be okay with their sin. Don't let them deceive you to be okay with it. It's not okay. Now, people that are clueless, they don't know. The Bible tells us to be patient, to rebuke, to be long-suffering with those people. And I've told people in our church and people that have come through, I will struggle with your sin issues for your whole life if it takes that long for God to get rid of them in your heart. Because the reality is until you die, you're still going to struggle with sin. What I won't struggle with is someone that looks at me or looks at our church or looks at God's word and says, I know what God says, but I refuse to say that's sin. I'm going to do whatever I want. When people say that, it scares the death out of me for them. It's like, how can you, how can you say that? I'm okay with wrestling, but to just look at God and say, I'm not going to believe you. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to help them except to confront them and then continue to confront them and not let them hurt or be contagious on the rest of the body of Christ. You know, we've twisted. It says here that especially the one who not love his brother. You know, we've twisted the definition of love so terribly. You know, the Bible says that love is both hard and soft. It's quick to discern, but it's also patient. You know, God is a lover, but he's also, you see his wrath and his justice in his love. It's not like he stopped doing love to do wrath and justice. You know, Jesus seems to do and say some very unloving things at times. If you've read the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and the story of his life. The Bible is full of these things that just look like, man, that can't be loving. But you see, doing the right thing biblically without love for God and others makes us a religious Pharisee. And love without a willingness to do the right thing and suffer the consequences in our relationship to God and others makes us become a partner in evil. Let me say that again. Doing the right thing with biblically without loving God and others makes us a religious Pharisee. And love without a willingness to do the right thing that God says is right for him and others makes us become a partner with evil. You see that all the right thing does is expose where our heart is, what we're trying to cling to and what we refuse to have taken away, what we're clinging to and what we refuse to have taken away. And Jesus says, look, anything that stands in the way of me needs to be taken away. I need your heart first. Anything else is an idol. And that's exactly what we see when we read his word. 1 John 3, 11, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Remember, we just talked about, we've got these twisted definitions of love. You know, he says, from the beginning. So from the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and he put Adam in a garden and had a love relationship with him. And then he brought Eve along for them to have a love relationship. And then the deceiver came. Basically, what John is doing here is he's writing the old story out for us. He's showing how it plays out. And the deceiver, the devil, came in. He deceived Adam and Eve. They didn't go back to love God and ask his opinion. They did their own thing. And the curse came and sin came. And it's been, and that cancer of sin has been being 
put in the DNA of humanity ever since. You see, we are experts in telling the church and telling others and telling God how they are not loving us and should love us. But we are awful about laying down our lives to love in truth and grace. That's biblical love because we understand how much we're already loved. See, we're experts in saying, this is how I, you all should love me. And we are terrible at saying, you know what? What does God say love is? How does he ask me to respond in love? What's my understanding of his love when it doesn't look loving at times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in history and the scriptures? You see, we have all these new definitions and pressures of love And it's like the old definitions don't count. You know, simple provision and simple things don't have much value anymore. Everybody wants to be loved the way I want you to love me or else I'll find somebody who will. Oh, and by the way, it's never enough. It's, I got to have more and more and more. Why? Because you don't understand what you have and you are clinging to something in your heart that God wants to take away so he can give you something so much better. And that thing you're clinging to is probably the sin of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life that John wrote about in the last chapter of this book. He goes on and he says in verse 12 of chapter 3, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. You know, who is a brother? You know, that's a, that's a big question. Well, well a brother is, is someone who, who claims to know God who claims to to worship God. Cain and Abel both claim to know and worship God. Adam and Eve raised them in a a godly family, claimed that they could know him and and taught them about God. They they probably taught them about sin and we messed up and and we don't want you to mess up. And so they they taught them that you need to to love the Lord. You need to cry out to him that someday God's going to come and he's going to take away this curse and take away this sin. And and we want you guys to be ready. I'm sure Adam and Eve explained that to their sons. So what was this wicked thing that Cain did? Well, let's read. In Genesis 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 3, it says this, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you to kill you, to take you but you must rule over it. You, you, you can't let it have its way or it'll kill you. And so he looks at him and, and, and Cain is furious at this moment. And the reason he's furious in this moment is because God doesn't like the way or accept the way Cain is trying to love him. We don't know why, I think theologically, when you look at this, God was trying to get Cain and in his pride and in his heart to humble himself to his brother, to say, hey, Abel, looks like God's really satisfied with your firstborn lamb. Do you think I could get one of those to sacrifice? Do you think I could offer a firstborn lamb to you? 
And maybe they they both bring everything they have together before the Lord to offer to him. Instead, Cain didn't want that. He wanted God to be okay with what he was offering, with what he said was right, with what he wanted to do. And that's why he was so furious about it. And not only was he so furious, he didn't go to God and ask. God had to come to him and ask, why? Why are you so furious? What's your problem? And Cain says, you know, the reason I'm so mad is because you won't do what I, what I want you to do. You won't take my offering. And God's like, I'm trying to go after your heart, Cain, not just your stuff. I want you. And he says, look, if you're going to do what's right, it'll be accepted. But you know in your heart, Cain, deep down inside that you're not right. Can I just tell you that there's some of you out there right now that probably deep down in your heart know you're not right before God. And it's killing you. You may have emotions like this where you're furious or you're depressed. Can I just tell you that you don't have to live in this? That that Jesus was our lamb, the perfect sacrificial lamb, like the one Abel sacrificed to pay for the sins, to cover our sins, to the, a life for a life, paid the price so that we could have a relationship with him and be loved by him and be cleansed and purified and have our sins taken away. And you don't have to live like Cain because if you live like Cain, look what happens in verse 8 of Genesis 4. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? The Lord knew where he was. Cain lies and says, I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? This is always our response when we're rebuked or confronted with our sin. Well, it's not my fault. What? It's not my fault. You're the one that's caused all this, God. You kicked us out of the garden. My mom and dad had a great deal in the garden, and then we got kicked out. Cain can't take ownership of his own life. He can't admit he's a sinner. He can't admit he's got problems he can't fix, and he can't just cry out to God and surrender and say, I need you more than anything else. And then he said, verse 10, God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you're cursed, alienated from the ground that opens up its mouth to receive your brother's blood you've shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Even in that, we see that Cain's heart still isn't changed. See, had God told him his punishment and Cain would have dropped to his knees and said, you're God, you're righteous, whatever it takes, I'm sorry. And Thank you for giving me another chance. Thank you for giving me life. But instead, Cain is just mad at the consequences. Can I just tell you this is normal human response that we see all the time? That that until the the consequences are there now where, God, I'm mad at you and it's all your fault. Listen, folks, this was Cain's sin. Just because God said what he accepted and didn't accept it, God had the right to do that. Cain did not have the right to respond to God the way he did. Now turn back to 1 John 3. And verse 13 says, do not be surprised, brother, if the world hates you. Listen, God caused the world to hate Cain. He caused the world to, to, to not produce fruit. And he said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. You live in a cursed land. You lived in a, in a cursed world. You live in a world that's broken. And then in verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed from death to life 
because we love our brothers. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. He's not talking about if you committed murder, you can never be forgiven of your sins. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that if you can be okay with murder, if you can have an, a, a, a mentality of murder in your heart, then you don't understand the love relationship with God, what he's taken away from you in your sin, and, and what you don't have the right to take that isn't yours. Matthew 5, 21 through 24, Jesus kind of says the same thing. He talks about having a murderous heart in that passage. And he says, if you're angry with your brother, you're, 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 you're already kind of committing murder. He goes on to say, you're already kind of committing adultery if you're lusting after, you know, someone. And we don't like that. We say, well, I didn't commit the act. I didn't, I didn't kill him. Well, no, you still have hatred in your heart. There's still sin inside you. It's not about always what you do. It's about the motive of the heart that God wants to change. He wants to take that away and give us a new heart and a new way to be in relationship with him. You know, Cain represents the world. The world that says, I want God to like what I like the way I like to do it. This is the relationship conflict 101 that we see in relationships all the time. I have my way, they have their way. But here's the question. Does God say there's a right way? Did you ever ask him? Cain never did. Why? Because he couldn't own that he needed to have his heart dealt with. He needed to turn that over to the Lord. And so what's the opposite of, of murder? Well, the opposite of murder is what you read in verse 15. It, it's not just love. It, it's love on display. Look at 1 John 3, 15, it says, this is how we have come to know love. In other words, if you really want to see full love on display, he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? You know, there's a difference between concern and discipline and and justice and hatred. You know, sometimes we get stuck on this, well, well, I'm concerned. And look, there are times when the right thing to love is, is to give discipline, loving discipline that looks like hatred, but it's not. There's a time when having concern for someone means rebuke. There's a time when having concern from someone means not saying anything. That The reason we've come to, to know him is because we're willing to lay down what we think and look for what God wants and do what he says to do. That's why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. You see, we, we have such hatred in our heart, if we're really honest, because we can't get our way. And the Bible says that's the definition of sin. Now, laying down our life doesn't mean rolling over to other people's wills. It means looking to God's will. It was God's will for Christ to die. So he wasn't just rolling over and giving up. He knew the plan. And someday he's going to come back and he's not going to be patient anymore. And it, there's going to be an end to it. But it does mean that we need to think about how God has given us life. It says, if you see your brother in need and you don't provide, listen, we live in a world where everybody is trying to provide right now, quote unquote, needs. Listen, we need to be real careful between helping people stay in their sin and giving them their wants and desires and actually meeting needs. Jesus didn't run around giving people wants. 
A matter of fact, he confronted people's wants, but he did try to meet needs. He didn't meet everyone's needs. He couldn't. He only met some people's needs where he was at at the time he was there, not the whole world at that moment. And that's the same for us. There, there are times when what our brother needs is to want some more, to desire some more. It doesn't mean that we do that out of hatred. It means we should tell him, hey, I'm not going to give this to you because I love you. I think you need to learn some things and, and, and I'm not withholding from you. And, and, and here's what a real need is. And if, if, if you can't eat, you call me, but I think you need to kind of deal with the other things that you think are needs that, that aren't. And so we've got we've to be willing to, to have those conversations in love and to worship God and abide in Him. In 1 John 3, 18, it says, little children, he uses that term again. He says, we must not love with word or speech, but with truth and action. I love that. He follows it up and he says, now, let me clarify. I'm not just talking about words and deed, but there needs to be truth with action. That's what I'm talking about when you have a conversation about what's a want and a need. And you don't just give once so that you can keep a relationship. You don't just give once so that there's peace, you, you actually move into the person's life to talk about the truth and you take action on that truth. Verse 19, he says, this is how we will know we belong to the truth and will convince our conscience in his presence. Even if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our conscience doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God and can receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Basically, John's saying, look, there's a conscience in us that should I do the right thing? Should I not? That when you come to know Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit comes in you, there's a moment when you start to read God's word. And when God's word matches up with your heart, that's when our conscience is working for us to be generous, to help someone else out. But so often we go by feeling, not by truthful conscience. We go by feeling. And well, well I don't want them to not like me. I don't want to say no. So I'm going to just I'm going to do what feels right. That's not conscience. That's instinct. That's feeling. God says, look, I want you to, to deal with your conscience. And then he says, you know, if you want confidence before God, then take your conscience, take what the Holy Spirit's doing and take it to the word, match those up, keep his commands. Then you'll know what's pleasing in his sight. When you ask, when you pray, you'll be praying the right things that God wants, not just prayers of wants that you want or you think might should happen. That's exactly what he lays out here. And he tells us that our ultimate need, regardless of meeting the needs, we could meet someone's physical needs the rest of their life. But if they die and they don't know him and Jesus has not taken away their sins, all the physical needs that we met meant nothing. It meant nothing. When we meet physical needs, when we meet the needs of our brethren and of humanity, when we do that, it should always be in the name of Jesus. We should always be about making him known we should always be about saying the reason I'm doing this is because he's changed me. It's not because I'm just some good person, some nice guy. Jesus changed my heart and I need you to know that. We don't have to go into a whole sermon, but we do need to, to let them know that the reason we're doing what we're doing is because I've been changed. He's taken away my sin and he's given me these things. And now he's asking to take the things that I have away from me and give them to others. Now, why don't we get what we ask for. Because he says we ask from him uh, and can receive whatever we ask of him. So why don't we get it? 
Well, James 4, 1 says it this way. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, wait, I ask all the time. Well, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. See, I love this. He says, listen, if you want to know why you're not asking, it's because you haven't spent enough time knowing what God's desires are. Sometimes God's desires are not our desires. Sometimes what we think is right in this world, a healing and finances and the things that we want are not what God wants because we typically don't learn or grow or have him take our sin away until we have physical things taken away. And then when physical things are taken away, we start actually dealing with our hearts. We start actually crying out to God and allow him to speak to us. And so I love when he says, he's like, you've got to check your motives. Do you really want God to deal with you? Do you really want him to get in there and tell you his yes, his no, or his wait? Or do you just want to ask and claim some verse and think that you can become God and tell God what he should give you? 1 John 3, 23 goes on to say, now this is his command that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Remember, that's a loaded phrase. That means we believe in the son of Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah. We believe that the entire Bible is the same God, same book. Jesus isn't some new God, new guy. He was from the beginning. And then he says, so you You believe in the name of him and you love one another as he commanded us. I love that. He says, he doesn't say just love one another, right? No, he says, love one another as he commanded, not according to our feelings, not according to our wants, not according to our desires, but what has he commanded us to do to love others? And man, if you take some time to read the scriptures and look at that, you'll be laying down your life. Verse 24, he goes on to say, the one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that we remain, that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. And I love this. He says his command is that we believe in him, that we love one another so that we know that if we believe in him, he's taken our sins away. And if he's taken our sins away, then there's nothing I need to get from anyone because Jesus is the one that has it. So I'm not going to sin against people. I'm not going to use people. I'm going to give myself to people and I'm going to look for his commands on how I do that. And then he says, the one who keeps his commands remains in him. Look, if you want to know him, If you truly know him, you're going to have a desire to keep his commands. And can I just tell you, sometimes his command is is to just confess. Sometimes his command is to say, man, I'm a mess. I want you to take away my sin. And I confess that you are great and that you are God and that you are everything and that I am nothing. And I desperately need you to forgive me. And then after that, it's asking others for forgiveness because you embrace what he gives you. And the Bible says that when you ask Jesus, when you believe and he comes into your heart, the Bible says that he gives us his spirit as a down payment, that we are indwelt, we are sealed with his spirit in our heart. And when that happens, 
We now have a power working within us that keeps us remaining in Him, that keeps us confident in Him, that keeps us coming back to Him to deal with our sin and to take away our sin, and that we know with full confidence that because of what He has done and what He is doing, that He has forgiven us and taken away our sins, past, present, and future. It's just our job to respond to that truth. It's our, our, our job to say, man, take it away now. You can have it now. I know you're coming one day and it's all going to be gone. I know someday I'm not going to have a life, so you might as well have my life now. I give it to you. I lay down my life. Versus Cain. Cain who said, I want my life. I want my crops. I want my stuff. And it was all taken from him anyway. And then when it was all taken, all he did was get mad, furious, and think it was unjust of God. Look, there is no plan B. There is no other way. And if we understand that by receiving him, Jesus, then we will love others and tell them through word and deed about him, then we'll come before him and say, you know what? Everything I'm clinging to, you can take away. It's all yours. I lay it at your feet. I lay it at the foot of the cross. And whatever you want, I'll do from this point forward. If you want me to climb up on that cross for the next group of people, I'll do that. Whatever you want, Lord, because I just want this pain. I want this taken away. I want to be in your word so you show me how to deal with this mess. I want to remain so close to you, like this verse says in verse 24. I want to remain so close to you and so close to your your words because they're your love letter, your commands, your statutes, because you love us and you love other people. And I just want to be close to you. And I know your spirit in me is going to help me do that. So how do we know when we're really walking as I'm wrapping up here? How do we know that we, we really believe in his name and that we are loving one another as he commanded us? How do we know that, that he's remaining in us and the spirit is working? Well, next week, I'm going to go more, even more in depth than that. We're going to talk about the spirit and the anointing that the spirit has on our lives and, and how that purifies us and washes us clean. But here's kind of a quick test. In Galatians 5, verse 19, it says this, Now the works of the flesh, remember, Jesus said to crucify the flesh, to kill the flesh, that he came to do away with the sin of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Paul's writing in Galatians 5 to this church in Galatia. God's asked him to write this, and he says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry. Sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who, who practice, in other words, it's like a sporting event. Those who say, you know, I can do these things. It's no big deal. I like doing these things. I'm going to do these things and nobody can tell me not to do these things. He says, if that's your heart, you are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You obviously don't know what Christ is doing to try to take away these things out of your heart and out of your life. However, if you do one of these things and some hatred comes out and some strife comes out and you recognize it and you fall on your face and you say, God, take this away. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And you ask forgiveness from another person say, I'm sorry. God is working on me. He's working to take this mess away out of my heart. Man, God is smiling down from heaven in those moments. He's like, you are, you are participating with me in what my mission is in your life and in the world. And I'm so excited to remain in you. I'm so excited to be with you and do this. 
And then he goes on in Galatians 5.22 and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, fruit is a natural byproduct. You don't have an apple tree try to produce fruit. It's just a natural byproduct of a healthy environment and a healthy tree. And apple trees don't produce oranges. It's evidence in what the fruit is. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Remember, that's biblical love. The biblical love that wants to obey God above all else. Joy, that your joy may be complete. As John said earlier, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Our kids right now at FX Church are going through the fruit of the Spirit. This is what they're going through and learning. And he says, there's no laws against these things. You can do as much joy and love and peace and patience and goodness and faith and gentleness and self-control as you want. There's no laws. God says, this is the kind of stuff that when the spirit moves, it just starts to pour out of you. The problem is our sin gets in the way and he's got to take that away so that these things can take, this fruit of the spirit can take root and begin to grow in our hearts. And in verse 24, he says, now those who belong to Jesus or to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. They've taken away the sinful body that, that, that sins with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. He says, love God, love people here. He looks and he says, look, he wants to, to take away the flesh that causes the problems and it's gonna be taken away someday. We're going to die. We're going to be out of these bodies. The question is, is there anything more? And the scripture is clear that there is something more. There is another life to come. And there are two camps of people. There's a camp, there's the the devil's children and there's God's children. Those are Jesus's words. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm not trying to be rude. Those are Jesus's words. And you can't trust the other words of Jesus if you don't trust those ones. So which family are you in? Have you surrendered your life to God? Have you given yourself? Have you asked him to take away your sin? Are you participating with him in that endeavor to take, to make you more like him and to take more away and and ask others to join you, to join him and his work to do that? Because if you do, the fruit of the spirit will fill you up and he'll take sin away, but he will fill you with some incredible things that can never be taken away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to pray and to be before you. I pray that you would just convict and work on the conscience of the people that I'm talking to, that if anyone here feels like they've not surrendered their life to you and claimed you as the one and believed in your name, I pray that they would. And Lord, I pray that they would surrender to you. They would let you take their sin. They would stop clinging to the things that that bring no life and they would cling to you, the life giver, and they would confess their sin and say, I'm sorry, God. I just want to be yours. I recognize I'm a rebellious, rebellious person and I surrender to you and I embrace your forgiveness. I, I, I take on your forgiveness. I know that you've forgiven me of my sins, past, present, and future, and now I'm ready to work with you on having you take more of me away and giving me more of you in my heart. And for those of us who are believers, I pray that we would take these verses seriously. And we'd ask ourselves if we're truly remaining in you, 
if we're really loving your word, if we're really leaning into your commands, if we're walking in the spirit, if we're participating with you and showing what you showed, which was you want to take away the sins of our neighbors and coworkers and the sins of our heart. But you don't just want to take something away. You want to give us the fruit of your spirit. So Father, I pray that we would deal with those things. I pray that that people would reach out. That they'd reach out to us as a church. They'd contact us if they need help. They'd reach out to someone they know that's a believer who lives a life that they see as we read this morning. Father, we give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor because it's all yours. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Uh, If there's anything you need, please reach out to us. You can go to our webpage at fxchurch.com and there you'll find contact information uh, for me, the pastor, Matthew Shockney, and our other staff. uh, And we'd be more than willing to, to help you in any way that we can or get you contacted or connected to the right people for the help that you need. We pray for you. We pray that this week would be a week where where you understand that God has taken and wants to take your sin away and give you something much better. God bless. Have a great week.